Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 393 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and also co-host with the wonderful Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? Well, apparently I'm wonderful, Valerie, so I might just take that and go with that for today. I think that's probably, (laughs) you know, I think you should, if you can dream it, you can do it, right? So I'm going to dream of being wonderful. Okay. Very good. Very good. What about you? How are you? I'm good. You know, I've, I've discovered this show on, um, show. it's on Apple TV. Right. Um, and it's great. It's a little bit YA, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it's called Dickinson. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. seen it. No. So Dickinson, it's a series and it stars, I think her name is Haley. Steinfeld. She was in Bumblebee, you know, that Transformers spin-off. She's also a bit of a pop head, but she is a very good actor. <laughs> Bumblebee. <laughs> like, like we've all That's seen not the kind of, I love Bumblebee. <laughs> Bumblebee's my favourite Transformer. Anyway, okay. um, it is about Emily Dickinson. She plays Emily Dickinson, the poet, the American poet. Right. And, um, and it's basically about the life of Emily Dickinson, but it is told in a – you know, it's set in the 17 or 18 whatevers, whenever Emily Dickinson was around, and a lot of her poems and themes from her poems feature in every episode. And it's about her relationships and about her obviously trying to make a name for herself as a poet in a time when many women didn't do that kind of thing. But it slips in, even though it's all period costume and the, the sets are lovely and they look like they're from that era, it, it slips in a few, um, you know, modern slang here and there. And it's just really interesting and refreshing way to um, portray this story. And I'm just absolutely loving it. I watch an episode every night. That's interesting because it's um, – I see there's I've, – I've done some Googling while you were talking mm-hmm. and uh, I see there's actually two series of it, which is um, which is interesting. Like how much do they mm. – where are you up to with it? Have you done a whole season yet? I think I have just finished or I'm almost the end of season one. And what, where is she up to in her life by the end of season one? Um, she's still – you know, making it as a well, she she writes all the time, of course, but it's more about her personal relationships because she had some interesting personal relationships with men and women and and so on, and obviously with her family, um, uh, trying to encourage or not encourage her as a as a poet. Mm. So it hasn't, so, so it hasn't. It's not something that goes through a big timeline. I, even though I finished pro- probably the whole of season one, it's only been a short period in her life. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, a couple of years, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's not like a lot has happened in that time. Because interesting, because to... I saw um, a couple of years ago, I don't know if we ever talked about this. I don't know if this was mm-hmm. on the podcast or not. You'll have to forgive me if we have had this conversation before because <laughs> I can never remember what we've actually discussed and what we haven't. But I saw a movie a few years ago called A Quiet Passion, which was about mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson. And it was. It was oh. Oh. Oh, I never knew that movie existed. Yes. So it was, uh, well, maybe we never talked about it because it was actually 2016. Could it have been that long ago? Did I see it in 2017 or something? Um, So it's uh, written by Terence Davies, directed and written by Terence Davies, and it's uh, about 
Emily Dickinson, the American poet, and it stars mm. Cynthia Nixon from mm. Sex and the City. And yes, yes. I went to see it because I, I find her quite an interesting um, character, Emily Dickinson, because, you know, she she had some um, – she ended up in a, in one room basically like her life got small she she wrote from the perspective of an observer because her life got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller i think she mm. suffered from agoraphobia and um and so it was quite an interesting movie to watch because i went with a friend of mine and we went to the to what we like to call the gray hair session which is the 11am because we can go to that she's a nurse on shift work and i'm on, and i'm a i'm a freelancer so we went to yeah. the gray hair session and at the movies and our local cinema has a very small a couple of very small cinemas where they run, they sort of tend to run the Ardia films during the day. Um, so they probably seat about, I don't know, I mean, you might get 30 people in there if you're lucky, I reckon. Mm. So it's almost like going to watch it, you know, in your lounge room. And we went this day and it was actually quite full, which was, you know, a bit unusual uh, for that sort of thing. And it's a very, I mean, it's called A Quiet Passion. It's about Emily Dickinson writing her poetry. Mm. It's a very quiet mm. film. Um but it also gets sort of towards the end because she had quite a difficult death, poor old Emily, um, mm. and it gets towards the end and, and you know, Cynthia is there, you know, in the bed acting her heart out and <laughs> kind of coughing and, and there was a lot, awful lot of coughing and, and there's a lot of coughing. there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> splutter. It was a, anyway, <laughs> I got the giggles so badly, like so badly that I could not it was. It was like oh. because it was like, it, like I felt by that stage that I had lived Emily's life in real time because this oh. is a very, very slow movie, very, very slow movie. So I kind of mm. felt like I'd lived it in real time. And then we got to the big death scene at the end, and I lost, I lost my arm, oh. and I was trying so hard to suppress my, my. I had to leave. Like it was just honestly, oh, no. and I was hysterical with laughter, oh, and it was no. terrible. And it's not a bad oh. film. I, I don't want anyone to think that that's the case, but it was just, I think, a combination of factors. The person I was with, like, it was just a whole range of things, and it was awful. So then, mm. so then, I wrote about that on Facebook, and I said how I'd gone to this session. I felt like I'd watched it in real time, and blah blah blah. Mm. And my brother, who works for Palace Films, <gasps> said to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> said to me you do know that's one of ours, don't you? And I was like, oh, <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Way to support family relations, Al. Oh, yes. So that's every I'm time going to I hear look a, for that film. Well, you should because and then you can actually give our listeners a proper report on it because yes. every time I hear Emily Dickinson's name now, because I really do actually love her poetry. Like I love yes. it. I love the, you know, the intimacy and the smallness of it. Um, mm. But every time I hear her name, I can only ever remember that moment. You know how you just flash oh. back to every embarrassing moment you've ever had in your life? Well, that was the yes. spectacular one, really spectacular. Oh, dear. Well, I'm going to seek out that film because I think um, it will be really interesting. You know, it's like you, you, you think of Emily Dickinson because when you're feeling a bit emo, you know, you kind of read a bit of Emily Dickinson and um, <laughs> just to remind yourself that, oh, other people feel emo too. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did not know about that film, so thank you for enlightening me. All right, let us move on. We've got some congratulations in order, don't we? We have some congratulations in order. We're very, very excited because two of our dear friends and um, Australian writers, yes. presenters, 
have been named on the CBCA, the Children's Book Council of Australia, yes. shortlist this year. Um, so, good. so first of all is the, the lovely Sue Whiting, uh, who has been – her book, The Book of Chance, is one of the six books shortlisted on the Book of the Year for younger readers. Um, mm. And it's a really strong shortlist. She's done brilliantly well. It was it was actually a really I'm, – I'm just going to say this because I was on the long list, but it was a very strong long list this year. And um, <laughs> so, I'm, you know, like all kudos to those people who made the shortlist. It was brilliant. Yes. And then, of course, the wonderful Pamela Freeman, who is our crea- yes. you know creative writing director at the Australian Writers' Centre, um, mm-hmm. has cracked the shortlist for the Eve Pownall, I think I think it's how you say it, Pownall Award, yeah. Um, yeah. which are essentially non-fiction uh, uh, sort of mostly picture books they are, but it's essentially Mm. um, books that have the prime intention of documenting factual material with consideration given to imaginative presentation, interpretation and variation of style. And it's for ages uh, 0 to 18 years. Um, But it's basically uh, a lot of the ones that I'm looking at here are, you know, picture books. Um, Mm. And Pamela's book, illustrated by Liz Anelli, is called Dry to Dry, Mm. The Seasons of Kakadu, um, out with Walker Books. So, well done to our Fantastic. team and to every, yes, and of absolutely. course to everyone on all of the shorts. Of course, yeah. yes, and it's a great list, especially if you want to get some ideas on um, books that you want to buy either for yourself or the young person in your life. Mm. Um, also, we want to say congratulations to Shankari Chandran, who is alumna of the Australian Writers Centre, and we've had her on the podcast um, with her awesome novel and her third book is. Is being has is being picked up so that's mm-hmm. very exciting um by ultimo press and that's going to be out i think later this year and that's uh, her most recent um uh manuscript so her her when we had her on the podcast when she wrote the barrier and um you can we'll put the link in the show notes but we've got a bit of a you know origin story of shankari Mm -hmm. that you can have a look at she's um had a career in corporate and and now she's a novelist which is fantastic Absolutely fantastic. Um, all right, so let us move on to – oh, no, I wanted to mention something. That's right. Right. And this is actually – because we do talk a lot about fiction and um, the highs and lows of fiction, but this goes out to all of the freelance writers who are writing freelance, you know, articles, content, that sort of thing out there. Um, and sometimes freelance writers kind of go, oh, you know, no, the the editor's not commissioned and they get down in the dumps and they think it's because they're crap or they have a bad idea or whatever. But sometimes it's not that at all. It's really important to remember that every publication in every issue of a magazine even lives and dies by the advertising revenue Mm. that is brought in. So a great example is that I literally just 10 minutes ago got an email from my editor saying, hey, we don't need this story this week because there wasn't enough advertising revenue, right? I mean, fortunately, I know she'll need it next week, but it doesn't – but the point is that – um, you know, it, it, it you do have ebbs and flows and sometimes it's got nothing to do with the quality of your story because I know she's going to take it in the next issue. Mm. It's all to do with the whether or not because there's a ratio of editorial pages to advertising pages mm. and even though an editor has commissioned something, sometimes if they're isn't the right ratio or there isn't enough of the advertising pages, they can't run that editorial. So 
often if you are not being commissioned for something, it's not necessarily because your idea is bad or, or anything like anything like that. It could be a simply commercial decision that's completely unrelated to your idea of whether or not advertising has come in. So I just wanted to highlight that in case there's some freelance writers out there thinking, oh, they didn't accept it. Well, there could be a a reason for that that's nothing to do with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. All right. Yes. So let's move on to our competition this week. This is so exciting. We have three copies of The Chase by Candace Fox. And, of course, Candace has been on our podcast before and she's the number one New York Times bestselling author and creator of our popular course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder, which is, you know, such a great course. She's been described by the Sydney Morning Herald as one of Australia's fine new-gen crime writers, and her latest novel is another thrilling ride. When more than 600 of the world's most violent human beings pour out from Pronghorn Correctional Facility in the Nevada Nevada desert, the biggest manhunt in US history begins. But for John Cradle, this is his one chance to prove his innocence, five years after the murder of his wife and child. He just needs to stay one step ahead of the teams of law enforcement officers he knows will be chasing down the escapees. Death Row supervisor turned fugitive hunter Celine Osborne is single-minded in her mission to catch Cradle. She has very personal reasons for hating him and she knows exactly where he's heading. Goodness so, me. Yes, I know. All the suspense. We have three copies to give away, so just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 12th of April. So writercenter.com.au slash win and just follow the instructions for your chance to win one of three copies of this thriller. All right. Now, Al, Mm. are you ready for the word of the week? So ready, Val. So ready. So ready. ready. Okay. Get ready. Luke. Can you, okay. Can she say it? This is the big question we have to ask. It's ourselves. actually easy to say. I'm just laughing too much. Lucubrate. L-U-C-U-B-R-A-T-E. Lucubrate. That looks like lucubrate, not lucubrate. Well, it could be lucubrate. Well, it's, I'm looking at the way oh, to pronounce yeah. it. It's got a y like in there. Incubate. It's lucubrate. Like, like incubate. Yeah, okay. Like so lubricate, lucubrate. but to front. Yeah. Yes, lucubrate. Lucubrate. Right. Okay. So do you know what it is? No, I don't know what it is. I just know how to say it. <laughs> All right. Lucubrate. Look, it sounds a little bit like it's related to, like, you know, inebriate, which could be relevant to writers too. No, it too. doesn't. It sounds more like, what did I say before? Lubricate. It's more like that, I reckon. Lubricate. Yeah, it's just like it, if you if you say lucubrate, you I could. just feel like you mispronounce lubricate. Possibly, mm. but it's nothing to do with lubricate. Although that actually works for some authors as well, just quietly. Yeah, because that, that lubricate could be a little bit like mm. you could lubricate yourself to inebriate yourself. Yeah, right, drunk, edit sober, etc. Yeah, et cetera, yes, all that. Yeah. All right. According Sorry. to the McRae Dictionary, it means to work. Write or study laboriously, especially at night. Oh, it's so you the could story say, of my life. Yeah, exactly. Right there. That's right. That's right. So you could say, I can't go out tonight. I have to lucubrate, lucubrate on my manuscript. You are not going. <laughs> no one is ever going to say. Valerie, 
No one is ever going to say that. They are not. Because people well, would I look don't... at you and go, why are you lubricating your manuscript? <laughs> lubricate. Okay. <laughs> I need to be able to grease an oil change, mate. It'll be right. Oh, Sorry. Lucubrate. All right, that's a good one. I like that one. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that that was entirely successful, but we shall let our listeners be the de- deciding factor. Okay. Um, tell us what you thought of that particular little presentation. Uh, come visit us in the Facebook community. The yes. search for "So You Want to Be a Writer" podcast community on Facebook. Come and tell us what you think of Lucubrate and the way that that material was presented. I'll, I'll be nice though, because you know, yeah, be kind. I haven't had my you gotta be kind. Yeah, you gotta be kind. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Crime and Thriller Writing. In this five-week online course, you'll discover how to write a gripping page-turner, the different types of crime and thriller fiction, the ingredients every good story needs, how to manage characters, pace, suspense and climax, and publishing options and much more. And you'll get feedback on your writing from your tutor. Let's hear from Shankari Chandran. When I first decided to do a course at the AWC, I had been writing for a few years. I had taken time out of my career as a lawyer to have our fourth child, and life was chaotic, but I had always wanted to write, and so I thought I would give it a go in between baby feeds and school runs and so on. I have just published The Barrier with Pan Macmillan Australia, and I'm loving it. For many years, being published felt like an impossible dream, like something that happened to other people. When I heard that I was going to be published, I was at Officeworks because I find buying stationery really therapeutic, and I put down my stationery and cried. The AWC's course has had a huge impact on my writing. It's changed my understanding of the thriller genre and my approach to writing it. Because of the clarity the course gave me, I feel far more confident doing it. I feel incredibly fortunate that my books have been published now. I love writing. It's energizing and meditative for me. I feel really committed to the stories I'm telling and I hope to keep doing it. Look, I would absolutely recommend the courses at the AWC uh, to friends, aspiring authors, anyone. I would say do a course, do lots of courses, and do them earlier rather than later on your writing path. It's worth it. To find out more, go to writerscentercomau slash crime. Righto, let us move on to our writer-in-residence this week. We have a grand old chat with Roland Perry. Now, Roland has written a billion books, maybe not a billion, but like uh, say, 28 really? books or something, and <laughs> ranging from fiction to nonfiction. He's written things like um, biographies on Monash. He's written uh, the Changi Brownlow. He's written novels, as I've mentioned. There are too many to mention, but his latest book is The Shaman, which is a gripping international thriller, and he's going to tell us all about about it. Let's have a listen to Roland Perry. Roland, thank you so much for joining us today. Great pleasure. Thank you, Valerie. Now, let's just start with your latest book. For those who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what The Shaman is about? Yes, it's quite an easy one of the 36 I've done. (laughs) If I had to say what it is, and I'll try and get it in a nutshell for you. Uh, Big Energy Corporation, Mm -hmm. 
is trying to get rid of an inventor, a little Australian inventor. When I say little, not necessarily physically, but he is only one person against a trillion-dollar industry who has, A, found vast amounts of oil in Tasmania, and, B, he's invented an add-on to a combustion engine that will kill all carbon. I could have called the book The Carbon Killer to the shaman, <laughs> but that is the story in a nutshell. And how did the premise for this come into your brain? What made you decide to write this story? What a lovely question, coming to my brain, because that becomes <laughs> an issue in the whole thing. Um, I, it's as simple as that, this, Valerie, and it's of, often the case that it's a very easy entry and you don't know where it'll lead. I was in Chiang Mai. I have a retreat a home in a remote part of Thailand, Chiang Mai, mm -hmm. which you may have heard of and a lot of your listeners will know. And I met a fellow who was photographing this invention by L, one word, A-L, Haut, H-A-U-T, H-A-U-T. And I was quite enthralled within seconds because he said, this chap has got an add-on to combustion engines which will eliminate carbon. In other words, no matter what goes into the engine, he's found a way using cold fusion, which I knew about. I'd studied it at university superficially a long time ago, but I had studied it. Cold fusion, there are two forms of um, nuclear power, effectively. There's that which makes the bomb. We all know about that. You use uh, uranium-235 or plutonium to make those terrible atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs. Mm -hmm. And there's a very harnessed, small version of nuclear power called cold fusion. And this chap had done what no one had done, or the claim was, he had harnessed this energy. When I say no one had done, I mean any scientist you think of, from Einstein to Tesla to Pons, Fleischmann, I can go on to the long list, have played a lot with cold fusion and not quite pulled off getting it to work when applied to something like a car engine. Mm -hmm. And this chap allegedly had done this, and the guy was a photographer who was telling me, he said, I've actually photographed the cold fusion in operation outside the car. He hadn't put it in a car. This was four years ago, Valerie, mm. 2017, about this time, actually, uh, February, March. So I said, right, I'd like to talk to him. I had in mind um, a fiction, a non-fiction book because I thought this is so fascinating if he's actually pulled this off. You know, Australians are quite pragmatic in what they do and uh, they surprise the world often, mm. um, whether it be in sport or science or a whole lot of things. And this man sounded interesting. Anyway, he was more interested than I thought uh, and he flew to from Bangkok where he was in hiding, which gives you an idea of the pressure he was under. <laughs> and we had really long interviews. We're talking eight hours a day for three months. Oh, my God. <laughs> and in the middle of it, well, it was only one session. <laughs> it was, uh, it was in, it, the Holiday Inn was next door to my apartment um, and it was empty. The lobby was empty. So we'd go in there every day just to get out of my office and – out of his hotel and we'd go there and uh, we'd, we'd, I'd interviewed him, taped him. Mm. And it was fascinating, but in the middle of it, I, I was trying to work out exactly when, I probably got it in my notes, but about six weeks in, I said to him, uh, this has to be fiction. 
because he told me such extraordinary things that would never be published. <laughs> You're talking about oh, a whole lot of destruction and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I knew from vast experience, more than most people in this country, about defamation, attempts to yeah. kill your books, and so on and so on. And I'd made the decision once or twice before to go for fiction rather than non-fiction. But this was startling, and I knew that no publisher would, would, would have the courage or maybe the temerity to publish this book. So that's how it began. Wow. Okay, so you've mentioned that you've got 36 books. Now, they are fiction, they are non-fiction. Um, you, you really do uh, quite a crossover. What makes yes. you decide what kind of project to take at that particular point, you know? What makes you decide, I'm ready for a fiction book now or I'm ready for a non-fiction book now? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I've only done six fiction. This is number seven, so 30 mm. non-fiction, roughly 30, and, and mainly biography for my sins. And I'm not so hot about this, but I've probably done more biography than anyone else in Australia, probably even the English-speaking language. But I'm not. it's not a boast. I don't want to be known necessarily <laughs> as a biographer, but it is often the easiest way through a story if you follow a, a man's career and life or a woman's career. I've done a couple of females in my biographies. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, it gives you a terrific narrative drive if you're following it the right way. Yes. And I'm very keen to make sure people keep the book, keep reading the book. Narrative drive is very important and character development is very important. So they decide, narrative drive and character development, characters decide what I'm going to do. Uh, in this case, it, it is unique. I had one other years ago that I said, it's got to go fiction. It's just going to be too difficult. This one was unique in that I knew the dangers ahead, and that's the glory of having been in it half a century. It's just experience. Mm. So I decided, you know, mostly I say, right, I'm going to do a nonfiction, say Don Bradman or John Monash or mm. Victor Nathaniel Mayer Rothschild, a big spy, and so on and so on. And you just know that you've got to, you, you just go straight in. There's no mm. point in unless you're dramatising something for television, you don't worry about the fictional side. You've got to do heavy research and, you know, that's what I rely on enormously. But what makes you just – let's take non, let's take biography, for example, because you mm. have written so many. What actually attracts you to a particular story that makes you decide I'm going to spend months of my life, sometimes longer, on this topic? Sometimes a lot longer, yes, mm. yes. Uh, what makes me decide? Well, what it attracts may sound you? Odd, I bounce around the genres. I don't stick with, well, I have done a lot on war, a lot on sport, mm. um, and, of course, a lot on biography we just discussed. And I, I really look at it and say, what is the best format from it? And it's got to inspire me, Valerie. I've never taken on a commission. I've taken one commission for the money in mm. 36 books. In other words, it wasn't my idea. I had no, I was not inspired by it. As it turned out, I, I got interested in the subject as I got into it, but it was not um, something I would have grabbed at. So I normally, you know, I want to be inspired because you've just hit on a very important point. You've got to carry yourself, mm. in some cases, for three or four years through a story. And if you're not inspired, if you get up in the morning and it's drudgery or publicity or someone else's idea or it's boring, then you don't want to get out of bed and do it. You've got to face it. But when you really want to get into the subject, it makes a huge difference. That's why uh, I chose books anyway to write because I wanted to, to be inspired. 
Mm. And so when you are writing biography, you um, you have written ones where the, the subject is still alive, you know, like Shane Warne, for example. Um, or but, Don Redmond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, or, but you've also written ones where they are not alive. So True. what do you have to do to – because obviously when you can actually talk to somebody and interview them and all that kind of stuff, it is easier to bring them to life because – for obvious reasons. Um, so what do you have to do when somebody has long gone to yes. really get some personality and really get more of their more colour onto the page? That's a good one. I, I rely enormously on archival material then and letters. You can judge if someone is a good writer. I mean, Monash was a terrific writer. I mean, he was better than any professional you'll ever know if you look through his archive. Absolutely fantastic. So reading his letters, you get an idea of his mind, his eloquence, the way he thought, the humour. Same with Bradman, different kind of writer, the most, um, how can I put it, no one in our history has ever done synopses of events and situations he was talking to me about better than him. He was a walking, articulate email <laughs> from yeah, he wrote. Um, well, we worked out he'd received, I think it was um, something like a, a several million letters, and he replied to a million of them. He, he, yeah. And I said, How do you sort it out? And he said, Well, one in four. He said, The rest I don't bother with, and they got thrown out. So when you've got two eloquent people like that in different ways, mm-hmm. Monash more descriptively, Bradman succinctly, unbelievably succinct, you you have a running start. So if you read a whole vast range of those letters, you knew what how they spoke almost. You knew mm. what tickled them and so forth. So that is an enormous help to you when you're doing the research. And um, so that's what I rely on if they've gone, mm. uh, in Monash's case. And in Don's case, I have a pretty big archive of letters anyway, but... I got hold of hundreds of letters by him, and they're in the National Archive. They're all over the place. The ones I was interested with Bradman were how he handled the apartheid issue and became Nelson Mandela's hero because Mandela Mandela said in 2000, he is my greatest hero of all because Mm. he had, and this is Mandela speaking, he said, Bradman began the end of apartheid by standing up as a white person who was not a politician who changed his mind from the normal conservative thinking about where he shouldn't interfere in other people's politics. Bradman did his homework big time, spoke to Vorster in South Africa, the fascist. He spoke to the two prime ministers above the issue I won't go into now, but he flew there and interviewed them, you know, chatted with them. Mm. Uh, That was Heath and Wilson. So, when you get that sort of insight onto the man's character, you're really into something. I regard that as Bradman's greatest achievement. Everyone thinks of cricket and 99.94 batting average. What apartheid issue did, it showed his true inner character. Mm. And that's what you're looking for all the time. Did he have integrity? Does the person, no matter who they are, do they have basic integrity? Are they frauds? Are they fake? So, you know, you have to cover all that ground. And a lot of people are all those things put together, so you've got to sort that out. You know? <laughs> so obviously with someone like Bradman, there is innate 
inspiration in the person and also in the story. And as you say, the the narrative drive is kind of already there because they lived their life. But when you're writing fiction, and let's just take your latest book, for example, you yeah. have you have to invent the narrative drive. So what do you how much of the story do you know before you start writing? Do you merely start with an idea and start writing or have you got most of it kind of key plots already sorted? Yes, that's, well, this is a unique tale and I use the word properly. It's unique in the sense that I had to ride the wild tiger, that is the interviewee, for a, a 12 months on end because it was so all over the place in terms of what he, the trouble he was in the invention, the oil we discussed earlier. Uh, so I actually, for the first time in my career, I don't want to do it again, was actually writing as I was researching, trying to get it down in some comprehensible style and, and narrative. So that's a very unusual one. And I did one thing I've got to say is that most of the characters in that book are alive and real. Mm. So that, that's one of the issues that I've not dealt with in fiction before so much. I mean, you obviously amalgamate every fiction writer worth this, you know, worth anything, use real people. They don't concoct it from imaginary thing. That's very rare. You might get that in children's authors and things, but you don't get it in the great adult writers. They're thinking of particular individuals for positive and negative reasons. They might mm. dislike them intensely. <laughs> and this is the case with this particular gentleman, Al Hote, I had to, you know, follow the great mystery of his life, why he was being chased, why people wanted him eliminated and so forth, and his invention. I had to do the science research on that. I read all the um, uh, the peer review papers on cold fusion so that when I was interviewing him, I knew what I was talking about, even though I had superficially studied it at tertiary level. So you have to go into the research. In this case, I had to go in as I went. And I've just got to say that it was easier when you knew who you were dealing with and whether they were good or bad characters and they were split up like that you know, on occasions others were in the middle when you actually know what they look like and how they sound and you've interviewed them yourself perhaps it's a lot easier to characterize them because it then becomes almost a non-fiction narrative mm. and uh, that had advantages in terms of writing and it was easy on one level because i knew what they looked like i knew uh, all of, um, don't forget, I have a, a vast connections in the, or had, it's getting, you know, after 40 years, Valerie, they're slipping away and dying and retiring, and that's in the intelligence world. Mm. So I was able to tap that here and there, and when I talk about intelligence, every person I describe in there, I've changed their names, in the intelligence world is real. Mm. And so when you are essentially fictionalising truth... <laughs> Um, yeah. what do the integrity you... of events is what I like to say. Yes. Yeah. What do you have to do when you feel that you are crossing um, – you, 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 Difficult they're, they're, areas. Yeah. Like how do you make your decision as to um, what to include and what not to? Yeah, that that's a – you know, I haven't thought about this. I've just done it. So mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things. Um, you have to, for example, Lucara. I'll give an example. I followed Lucara's method. He wrote about five or six spies in the Smiley books. I think he's one of the greats of all time because he captured an era. Very few writers, male or female, have captured an era. And 
Lucare captured the Cold War. There's just no one who got near it. It was anti-bombed. It was just very, very grey and depressing in many respects because he was living that as a spy himself. So I, I saw what he'd done years ago when I was writing my own stuff on on espionage, and it was clever. Uh, what he did is he changed the countries a little bit. He changed the locations. He changed the names. Uh, more than, and I've done the same thing, you, you have to sort of just make it not quite accessible. In one case in the book, you've got, I actually changed the sex of the individual. Mm. And that may sound tricky, but um, the person is going to be humiliated anyway, and so he can always say, well, that's not me. Mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you like, all the things that he or she did are in the book, all the... Um, the, the vulgarity, the corruption, that's all in the story with this person. And I'm not worrying about defamation so much because mm. this person could not come at me. Everyone knows how um, corrupt the person is. I've just exposed it, but I've changed his or her sex, which does allow you certain liberties, if you like. So tell us with this book, you, the, obviously the seed was planted in 2017. Can you just give us yeah. some, um, just an idea of a timeline of when you started writing the first draft, how long it took, um, and then, yeah. you know, subsequent uh, events after that? Yeah, well, it, as I said before, it's, it is an unusual one, and I thought this is so massive, whether it's the science I've got to look at, I've got to go down to where this man claimed to have discovered oil. I've got to talk to a lot of people. So there was massive research going mm. on. And I thought it was going off in so many directions, whether it was the cold fusion stuff, the politics. Remember that um, I have in the book, and I won't say whether this is uh, fact or fiction, but mm. I have, well, I can say it's 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 not fiction. It's nonfiction in this case. Three countries have been vastly interested in this man, Russia, America and China, and they felt with him uh, variously, that's how I put it, to try and get him on side, mm -hmm. to try and get him to work for them because he's so important and so big. Mm. He's sort of like um, Werner von Braun from World War II, the Nazi, well, worked for the Germans, a great rocket scientist. This is Werner von Braun on steroids. Mm. So you, everyone wanted him in some way, and he's spiritual. So he goes, he's guided by the spirituality of the people he's dealing with, may give some clues, I don't want to give too much away, mm. in what happens and where he goes and what he does and who he helps and who he wants to work with. So that's another element in the book I'd not dealt with, and I deliberately tackled it, and there's not a writer out there in nonfiction who would dare bother to do that. You can <laughs> do it in fiction. Mm. Because it leads into all sorts of traps, and I kept it at arm's length. What I did was I was Valerie and I was Roland. I was anyone who was interested in the guy asking questions. And the main character does ask questions that you and I would want to know about his spirituality and his links to the real. Mm. So that was another challenge, which I really, you know, I didn't know how that would turn out. I started off thinking, oh, God, if you pull this in, because a lot of people say to me, and have said to me about Al Hote, oh, Roland, and this is really top-line scientists and stuff I've spoken to here in England, the US, they say, Roland, we just don't listen when he's talking about the spiritual. <laughs> uh, we're only interested in what he can develop, what he's doing with his inventions and so forth, <laughs> or in the case of the oil, 
whether he's developed it, whether it's uh, going to be the way he says it is or not. So I had to deal with that knowing that this was a tricky area. Mm. Uh, some people carry it off in fiction very well. I've read a few books who think, well, that's a bit of fantasy. You've got to suspend belief and so forth. I didn't let any, I'm not letting anyone suspend belief in this. When he says outrageous things, I've sort of left it and moved on but only occasionally have I said things that I'd always said to him well I don't really understand that Al and I have to I don't comprehend it therefore I can't use it mm. so that was the way I handled that so it's a very unusual book the biggest challenge I've had I would think because um yeah, because of what he's inventing and so forth and the danger he's been in while I was with this person and this is now fiction mixing up with non-fiction I suppose there were there were seven attempts to kill him overall and three while I was in touch with him. <laughs> so it's it's tricky on many levels, put it that way. At any point did you feel in danger? Because you were learning no, all this stuff and spending uh, so much time with him. Uh, would they shoot the messenger? Would I feel <laughs> in danger? Now, I I think it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, certainly no one will sue because mm -hmm. they'll just know that everything, not only me but others can pull information out and say, well, this happened and that happened. So mm -hmm. no one is going to bother with that. Yeah. I felt in danger over other books 30 years ago with do with espionage and the KGB and stuff, but I, I certainly did not at any point get paranoid about what I was writing about. I just got on with it. It was real yeah. solid work and I enjoyed it and I had to travel a lot to keep up with him. Um, and this is Australia, Thailand, England, France, you name it. I was there in New York. You'll see reference to New York. And um, it, it's, I hope it doesn't look like a travel log to people because I was just following the trail of everything, as it were. You know. So obviously you spent a lot of time researching. As you mentioned, you, you travelled a lot to do the research. Was it a full-time um, endeavour of yours from 2017 or, or were you doing other work at the time as well? Yeah, well, once I had the tricky narrative broadly down, I'd done about 150,000 words, I showed it to only one person, my literary agent, and uh, she agreed with me. I said, look, this is all over the place. I'll have to take 60 out. I just wanted you to see it first. Mm. And uh, Joe Butler, her name is, uh, and she, you know, she agreed it was, I had to trim it down. But I had done that in the first year and I have done three other books in that period. I've published three other books. Some of them mm. research was done earlier. I had a time right. So the last three years effectively have been upgrading the book, checking things um, as this whole cold fusion thing developed. For example, at the launch here in Melbourne on the 29th of March, we will be unveiling the car with the add-on that will run on water effectively using cold fusion. Mm. Now, there'll be a lot of people who jump around and scream at all this. Well, I've seen it and followed it for four years. There have been locations in Victoria. So out of the fiction at the other end comes, wow, surprisingly, a non-fiction <laughs> development. And so uh, the car itself uh, is going to be on, unveiled at the launch of the book. So I've really been uh, following that. I've been to every location that the uh, mechanics and engineers have been working in secret in Victoria. Uh, we actually were going for a launch a little earlier, but COVID got rid of that. And I'm mm. hoping it'll come. Uh, it, look, the whole world's not going to 
breakdown for me if it if it we we don't get there on the, the end of March. But it will be a moment because um, it, you know just having that invention at the end. So, and having said that, there's many a slip between prototype and production. And we've seen such invention, not as nearly, nearly as big as, as this and as good as this, but you've got to have the business backing. And I have not gone into that. I've deliberately kept my nose out of that. I didn't want it to interfere with what I was writing. And it's hard enough doing the writing, mm. uh, you know, let alone starting to say, well, what are you going to do with it and where's it going to be yeah. uh, produced and have you got the money? I mean, that's another ball game altogether, which it's I didn't want to do is big mm. enough. Um, so when you were writing that initial 150000 were yes. you aiming, f- I mean, were you aiming for 150000 or were you aiming for a particular kind of word count per day in order to get a first draft done? Yes, I got a first draft done and that was the 150 and I didn't know where it would head. Normally I have a concept of, how long it will be you do uh, you know after 36 books you get Mm. an idea of within a couple of thousand within a thousand sometimes of how long the book will be your brain has that measuring tape and this one i just said i'll keep writing this i'll keep writing this and huge chunks of that sixty thousand words were left out because Mm. they were they weren't relative to the main narrative. And one thing he did in Nicaragua, which was right off the beam to do the spiritual spirituality, and another thing he did at Port Arthur um, uh, during the uh, the terrible incidents there, mm. I thought, no, that is just another book, and <laughs> maybe I'll turn to a huge article on it or maybe I'll write it, I don't know. But that's uh, – I just thought, no, I'm not going to go there. It's going to – I want to concentrate on – the attempts to, you know, in the fiction to get rid of him and his two developments in oil and the invention. So what do you enjoy more, the process that is, writing fiction or non-fiction? I guess as you mature, and that's another word for getting older, (laughs) you you like the idea of um, getting it out of your head and not having to do. In this case, it was uh, completely the opposite. I was back in non-fiction researching effectively. But to answer the question, fiction is more attractive as you mature because you can you use your imagination a lot more. I had mm. to do that with this, but it was more um, Einsteinian. How's that for arrogance? In the <laughs> sense that Einstein dreamt up things, uh, for example, a, a theory of relativity. He dreamt and got it out of his dreams. Mm. So in this case, I had to use it here and there in terms of what was going on. But generally, it's just more fun. And I guess it's because you hate in the end, you have to, unless you're completely um, on the spectrum, you're going to hate research because it's footnoting yourself to death. And it's mm. uh, I remember talking to the great Les Carlyon, who was my editor very 50 years ago on the Age newspaper, and we both agreed if we see another footnote, we're going to um, <laughs> scream. and. Mm. You know, that's what you have to do with a biography on Monash or, or Bradman or any of the big names, the spies. You have to because you know there'll be academics who don't mm. write in the commercial sense looking over your shoulder, ready to attack, and that's not the only reason. You want it to be verified. Mm. So that's a lot more of a grind, if you like, than yes. fiction in general. So this book is out. 
which means you obviously finished it some time ago. Are you working on something else now already? Yes, I am, yes. And, Can you um, tell if it, what it's about or if it's fiction or non-fiction? Well, or? I hope you'll uh, – no, I can't, but I hope you'll interview me in about um, <laughs> seven months. Okay, great. <laughs> and it's a non-fiction and it's a pet topic that I've sat on since 1973 when I was living in England. I moved over there to, to get work as a writer, as a lot of people did in those days. And I got so much, I, I just said, one day, it's always the one day, I'll get around to it. And I finally got the run on it in my little hideaway in uh, in Thailand. And I thought, bingo, I'm going for this. And it, I got a nice email from the publisher saying, I really enjoyed this book. So that's good. You know, you feel good. And then I'm now planning beyond that. But I'm not quite sure what goes into next year at this at this point. Right. Do you have a big pile of those sorts of ideas that you go one day? Yes, I've got a one day. It's a beautiful title, actually. I, I, I'll pitch that from you, Valerie, <laughs> the one day file. I have an agenda and like a lot of writers, I'm a fireman. I want to go and chase a story and so that intervenes. The Changi Brownlow is a classic example. I mm. met the son of a man who was a, an absolute hero on the Thai Burma Railway and I dropped everything and did that book because it was spectacular. And the only way I would ever tackle such a gruesome story as the Thai Burma Railway with all the torture and, and deprivation of our, our soldiers and so forth. And so I dropped everything and did that. So I have an agenda and uh, sometimes it, it gets pinched by other authors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They don't mean that they haven't seen it, but no. you know, you say, God, Simons has done that. I really <laughs> have to put that on the back burner. I've done that once with him, for example. I thought, oh, I want to do that. And then it wasn't a big worry because there's so much to write. I think the thing he, he did first was that um, fantastic story about. Um, and it had been done before him, but he's a commercial writer and it was very uh, well done. And that was the 620 people who died off the coast of Western Australia, I think in 1629. Oh, yes. The yes. Yeah. And, and I had that around about number 18 in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be into my 90s when I got to that, but he, he did that. So, no, I have an agenda, but I'm open to slipping into something else. I did return to fiction recently for the reasons we've just discussed. I thought I just want to use the imagination a bit more yes. and let that flow rather than the rigidity. And it is rigidity. I mean, yes. uh, you have to approach it as if it's a PhD. Yeah. As some of the books, um, Monash is a classic example of that, but there are plenty others in my little lineup. So you, you have to... Um, you have to make that call and it's a, it's a grind. You know, you say, right, but can I do a PhD on this book? You know, take three or four years. Mm -hmm. And so it is a commitment. And sometimes that's why I don't get round to writing them because I say, oh, that can't be done within two years, that sort of thing. So let's, let's finish on what your top three tips are to aspiring writers who would love to have a career like yours one day where they, you know, have their own one-day pile and they work through it, <laughs> they, 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 they write full-time. <laughs> what would your top three tips be? Top three, um, for women, I wrote a biography of a woman called Celeste Vernard. So it was just called Celeste. Mm -hmm. Do you want the description briefly of them or not? No, no, I mean your top three writing tips. It was top three. Writing tips, like for, for writers on who, who aspire oh, to. Oh, writing I beg your pardon. Writing yeah. tips. Oh, God. 
Sorry, mm-hmm. I just thought you meant what are the top three books? They, they <laughs> um, I think the hardest thing, and most people give up, most people, I'd say 90, 98% give up, is to, to get a draft done, mm. is to do a blueprint chapter by chapter and get, a, say, a, you know, a little summary of, uh, in the blueprint of each chapter. So if you, did, if you did only 15 chapters, you suddenly say, oh, if I can expand that, I, I might have 60,000 words. But then you have to finish the damn thing. Yeah. And most people give up after a chapter. Most people say, oh, I can't do this. Some of them get halfway through it and want help, and that means that they've, they've not got the fortitude for it. It's a very unusual profession. I mean, yes. you, you've got to live with yourself. You've got to be able, if you can't live with yourself, then, you, you know, in other words, if you can't be alone writing. I've had tremendous names in the film industry. Have had, I've had to hold their hands through scripts and things because they have to be with somebody. Mm. I don't mean literally hold their hands. Mm, mm, mm. Some very big names I work with and they had, I had an, they had, want to be in the office, they would write together. You have to, if you're doing books, you have to want to be doing it. And uh, so get to, from A to Z, get to Z, and get that draft done and then maybe get help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it helps to get help because most 99% of writers are not up to it until about book four. Mm. There are some wonders, but normally they've been given enormous help by publishing publish, which I think is publishing companies, which is wrong because then the person says, what do I do next for the second book? And they're dumped if the sales aren't big, that sort of thing. Mm. So they've got to think in terms of four books. If they want a profession, that's, yep. you've asked me that, yep. I say four books and looking at all the greats that I've read about from Tolstoy right through, they really felt comfortable after four books. You mm. have a voice, you have confidence. So it's a bit of a grind, but oh, it's a fantastic uh, career. I love both parts, researching. I'm a very action-orientated writer. I get out there and do the research. I meet the relevant people, even if it's fiction. Mm. And then I, I enjoy the writing process even more than that. It's a great satisfaction to get through a mountain, get up to the top and say, I got there, whether it's 70,000 or 250,000. It is a wonderful feeling, a wonderful feeling. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Roland. Great pleasure talking to you, Valerie. There we go, Roland Perry. I mean, what a busy life writing so many different types of things, all these different genres all over the place. So this machine. Hard hard to keep up. Anyway, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, I'm I'm surviving the school holidays, Valerie. That's what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are sharing my position in life right now. That's what I'm doing. Mm. It's, it's all, that's all there is to be done It's just getting through What it. are you going to be doing? I'm just going to be doing all the things that I normally do, but I will be doing them with two, um, two teenage boys here, which means that the the dishwashing will stack up and the food cupboards will be empty and there will be people who need to be driven places and there will be skateboarding in the garage, which is noisy. There'll be drumming. There'll be people, you know, wandering off and wandering back and there'll be random teenage boys in my house all the right. time. <laughs> and then me in the middle of it doing an edit and recording podcasts and, <laughs> you know, trying to do uh, trying to write a book like I'm also yes. like, I'm writing a new thing and I'm trying to do that and I'm oh my God. yeah so that's like but it's you're kind of that's just what we do right you're as busy as Roland Perry 
Well, I haven't got 36 books. Well, yeah, okay. Colin's slightly ahead of me there. But I, you know, it's just this is the eternal juggle of the working mother and Mm. I am not alone with it. And, in fact, I am way more privileged than many because at least my work can be done at home and I don't have to be shipping people off places and, you know, doing all that. But, Mm, yeah, mm, it's mm. – it's not an easy juggle. And if you're doing it, I am with you. Solidarity. Yes, yes. I won't be juggling kids, mm. um, but I'm putting the finishing touches on our awesome new course on historical fiction. This is mm. such an interesting course. Anyone who is writing historical fiction needs to check this out because it goes through how to build, you know, an authentic world that's accurate as well. But mm. it, it's it also talks about, you know, how to understand historical fiction publishing trends. But the thing that for me is one of the, the best parts of it is there are screen as in, on-screen walkthroughs on how to use so many incredible resources from around the world mm-hmm. to research really specific, you know, to, I mean, we use examples, but it will show you how to actually effectively find the information you're looking for, whether that's the price of a beret in, you know, 1723 or what kind of food they ate in ancient times or whatever. Um, it's You can just spend all your time in going down the rabbit hole of all of these fantastic historical resources um, Mm. because it's just so interesting. But I love this course. Um, If you want to check it out, you can just go to writercenter.com.au slash historical. That's slash historical because you should register your interest and you'll be the first to know about it. And there will, of course, um, be a special launch offer. So check that out. (laughs) All right. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah, it is fun. Um, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and you will find me on – no, you won't. Yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer and you'll find me on Twitter at Al Tate. How long have I been doing this for? I don't, and I, just, know. I don't know where my brain just went, know. but it was not pretty. Um, anyway, I'd love to see you there because my social media is far more organised than my mind is right now. Oh what God. about you, Valerie? Where, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.